Hi, welcome to the Faith and Culture Now podcast. I'm Scott Schiffer, and today I'm really happy to be joined by James Crockett. So, James, good to have you here. Yeah, thanks, Scott. Uh, really excited to be on and to uh, have a good conversation today. Yeah, well, it's great to, to have you here. Uh, James is the college minister at the church that I attend, and uh, he's also working on his PhD in um, New Testament, I believe. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, you're now at dissertation stage, which is great, which it hopefully means you can see the light at the end of the tunnel, but it also <laughs> yeah. may mean it's a long t- tunnel. So. Yeah. Sometimes the tunnel is really long and the light is very dim, uh, but you've been through the dissertation stage. So you, you understand, you understand that feeling very well. Yes, indeed. Well, uh, the other thing I want to mention is that James also has his own podcast. I believe it is Theological Thursdays and um, Theology Thursdays. And, yeah, good, good Theological uh, Thursday. Good Theological Thursday. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I enjoy listening to it, and uh, it's, it's fun. You guys bring up lots of great and interesting topics. Mm-hmm. And uh, so today, hopefully, we'll also have an interesting topic, but we're going to be discussing the issue of sexuality and sexual desire and identity and how in our culture it's oftentimes made sort of like the pinnacle or the primary definer of who someone is. And the Mm -hmm. question is, is our sexuality or sexual identity uh, rightly our main identifier, or does scripture teach something else as uh, perhaps a more holistic view of who we are Mm -hmm. as people? So uh, to begin with, um, you read a book called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. So do you want to talk a little bit about that and uh, sort of how that got you thinking about this topic? Yeah, so I've always, I mean, obviously, if you're, if you're a theologian or a pastor and you're, you're doing your job well, you're wanting to address issues of culture. And, you know, one of the obvious issues when you talk about our culture now is the issue of sexuality. Uh, I think, you know, no one could deny that that's, that's gotta be the primary, maybe the primary issue in culture is definitions of sexuality. Um, but, um, yeah. And so I, I read this book. I had actually, Scott, I have a subscription to Audible. And so one of the things I do is, um, you know, I, I try to get a book a month and usually try to use a book, you know, with dissertation stuff. I do a lot of academic work. And so I try to use my Audible subscription to do things outside of my regular New Testament studies. And um, I was actually just looking up top book. I was looking at an article, just some top books mentioned from 2020. And this is a book that came up a lot. Uh, so Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self by Carl Truman, uh, who is teaching at, I can't remember, he's teaching at maybe, I want to say Westminster, but I, I could be wrong on that one. But um, really interesting book where he goes, and, and he's really, you know, the Rise and the Triumph of the Modern Self, really he's taking a historical look at, you know, how the culture, you know, how we define what it means to be human, how we define self. Um, you know, this goes into questions of anthropology and he's taking this historical look at it and he goes all the way back to a lot of times people start at the enlightenment, um, really is where you see the shift to modernity and modernity then shifts into post-modernity. Uh, but then he really goes back even to the romantics, uh, the romantic poets and how they begin to define, um, what it means to be human and, Again, I listened to this on audiobook and just really interesting. I almost wouldn't mind going and actually reading it. Um, like just, you know, sometimes audiobook, you, you can more easily tune out. But um, 
going from, you know, if I could kind of give a summary of the, some of the major shifts you see, uh, the first shift became where humanity, we weren't defined by, it used to be human identity was defined by, um, by the material, right? So you're defined by, you know, you are materially a male or you were a, what social class you were in or what nationality you were. And the romantics, there became a shift um, through, the, through the romantics, through the enlightenment period and all the way to the day where self became defined psychologically. And so what made you truly human is the psychological self. Your identity is found in what, you know, go back to Descartes, I think, therefore I am, right? So the idea of whatever is, it, however, I, myself is defined internally in my own mind, whatever I think I am, that's what I am, right? And so you have the shift in psychology, psychology becomes the primary definer of human identity. Well, then this comes into people like Freud, right? Who Freud comes in and Freud, you know, if you joke about Freud's philosophy and, you know, Freud, Freudism is sex is everything, right? You know, and, and Freudism basically being that humans are defined by almost their sexual desires, almost this animalistic sexual desire and that to find true fulfillment in life, it comes through fulfilling all of your sexual desires, right? And this comes out of Freudianism. And even though Freudianism and many, uh, amongst many philosophers and psychologists today, a lot of his notions have been disputed. One thing that you can clearly see his influence on is the idea of sexuality and that sexual fulfillment is the thing that's where you find true happiness and, and so this then shifts into nowadays through and again i'm i'm giving very large overviews he mentions yeah, broad I, I, then. yeah I, I would i would really recommend people go and listen to this book or read this book he mentions influential philosophers like charles taylor um some influential guys um through the 80s and 90s and Really where we get to the, today is this idea that people, that sexual desire, not just who you are biologically, that doesn't matter anymore. Uh, you know, hmm. bi biology is not the primary definer of who you are as a human, which in modernity might've been that way, but in post-modernity, along with the idea of the psychological self, along with the idea that sexual fulfillment is the way humans find true happiness and true fulfillment in life, that your primary definer is what do you desire sexually, right? Mm -hmm. And so this is, and explains why, you know, because some, sometimes, Scott, I think we get this question of, you know, why can't, you know, I say, you know, so someone who's, who is homosexual, um, you know, why can't we say, hey, I disagree with you, but I love you. Why is it, even if we disagree with someone's position on this, that that's seen as in our culture, this moral issue that people need to be canceled, that that mm -hmm. even disagreement is not acceptable anymore. And yeah. if you def if people define their identity this way, then it explains a little bit about why this becomes so offensive. Because mm -hmm. me saying I disagree with you is me a personal attack against your identity, right? And so people yeah. are defining their identity by whatever sexual desire they have. And you can't tell me any different because myself is defined by my mind and you don't have my mind. 
So if the psychological, if the psychological is the only thing that defines self, self becomes very subjective uh, and becomes very relative. So this is kind of the book. These are some of the concepts it deals with. Yeah, no, I think this is very interesting. And in our society, I think one of the significant issues is that we have an infatuation with sexuality. Mm -hmm. uh, I would argue it's an unhealthy infatuation, uh, which has led to the um, you know, promulgation of a number of things in our culture that are just not good for people in general. Um, I mean, I think of last year, there was you know, over 100,000 people that signed a petition to have Pornhub disbanded yeah. because of all the sexual trafficking that goes on with it. Yeah. But the sex trafficking flourishes there because of our infatuation with sexuality. Yeah. And, um, you know, when we look at um, Hollywood, many people, you know, the, the main thing you want to know about people is, you know, what's their sexual preference? You know, how mm -hmm. do they identify sexually? Right. And uh, it, it's like, well, you know, granted, sexuality is part of who we are, but it's just a single part of who we are. Yeah. When we look at the Old Testament, uh, especially the Old Testament, uh, and we look at, you know, the creation accounts, we look at what it means to be alive and to not be alive. We, you see this idea in Genesis where God creates man out of the ground, um, and then it says God breathes life into him. Mm -hmm. And uh, you don't become human until the life is breathed into you. It's this idea mm -hmm. that to be human is to be this animated body. You're not mm -hmm. just physical you're not just non-corporeal, you know, mm -hmm. or, or spirit, right? You are physical and spiritual, and you're not fully human unless you are both in this sort of this more unified structure. Mm -hmm. And so our identity is partly found in psychology. It's also partly found in our biology. Mm -hmm. And then um, I would look at the New Testament and talk about how Paul discusses the idea of moderation in all things. Mm -hmm. um, Paul is a tanner, a leather worker. He typically is, you know, making tents, fixing bags, things of that nature. But his all, whole identity isn't wrapped up in what he does vocationally. He's also mm -hmm. a Pharisee. Yeah. Um, and then he's a Christian. And then he's mm -hmm. a missionary. Mm -hmm. And he's single. And mm -hmm. he is a traveler. And he's oftentimes a prisoner. And so mm -hmm. uh, you have all these things combined to make him who he is. Yeah. And when he says, you know, lots of things are, you know, uh, allowable, but you do things in moderation. Anytime yeah. focus is put in life on one thing to the detriment of other things, those other things suffer. And you're not really being who you're meant to be yeah. because you're so focused on one area mm -hmm. that you neglect all the other areas. Yeah, Scott, I agree. I think, you know, one of the points you're bringing up here, and I like that when we talk about sexuality, what we don't need to suggest is that sexuality is in completely inconsequential to your identity, right? In other words, right. sexuality is part of who you are. Um, you know, I, we are both males, there are females, you know, we, it, sex is a, it's part of the creation order. You know, when God creates Adam and Eve, he creates the male and female, he um, you know, Adam makes this declaration that two become one flesh. So this is this is part of creation. So sexuality and sex in and of itself is not completely unholy. It's like anything else in scripture. Um, often what Satan does and where you find sin, 
is a good thing, something part of God's creation becomes distorted, becomes corrupted. Go back to Romans one, you know, the idea of, you know, they worship the creature, you know, talking about the depravity of man, mm-hmm. worshiping the creature rather than the creator. So what you have here is a disruption in priorities. And so what you're, what you're saying here, I think is true is the problem of sexuality becoming the primary identifier of what it means to be human is it's been elevated to a place it was never meant to be elevated to. And so, and so what happens when you get things out of order, well, then things become corrupted. Uh, you, you mentioned Pornhub and I've, I've done readings on pornography. It's, there's a couple different works in the past I've done readings on um, talking about uh, one was called the porn myth. And I can't, I can't remember who wrote that. I read another book a while ago. It was called the butterfly effect. And uh, it was actually not by a Christian guy. It was a guy, just someone just kind of doing a, a study on the effects of effects of free porn on culture. Mm-hmm. And, um, and what you find here is when sexuality is put to this, this pedestal and this idea that you find fulfillment by fulfilling your sexual desires, well, you open Pandora's box, right, to all sorts of really shocking, deep, depraved things. We talk about human trafficking. This is the, I would say this is the primary result of making sexuality a, a primary defier of what it means to be human. Because if that's what it is, well, then there are no limits. And the question then becomes, if that's what you're going to say is the primary definer, um, right now, yeah, this this question's even come up. I, I even saw a TED talk recently where, you know, someone suggesting that pedophilia that is a you know that we shouldn't speak so negatively of it that it's a you know we need to recognize that as a a legitimate desire and this is all a result of putting sexuality in a place it doesn't need to be mm-hmm. and right now that's not accepted in society but if we don't if we don't recognize that sexuality has been in the place it hasn't been, been, then we're going to continue to devolve um, into some really unfortunate places we don't want to go. And, and so yeah. it's something we got to address. You know, our, our sexuality is part of the lens through which we see the world around us. Mm-hmm. And um, when you get into the Freudian issues of, fulfilling all of those desires, um, we have to recognize that some desires are not good. Mm-hmm. And it, you know, I mean, it could be as simple as, look, you know, two people are married and they're committed to one another, but one person, you know, has all these desires to be with other people, you know, mm-hmm. they end up cheating on their spouse and it breaks their home. And there's lots mm-hmm. of consequences negatively for that, for mm-hmm. one another, for any children or other family members involved. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and, and that's just very basic. But mm-hmm. then you get into, uh, you know, these desires that are, you know, way out there that right now everybody's going, oh, yeah, that's, that's not acceptable. And mm-hmm. uh, I mean, you look at Leviticus chapter 18 in scripture, and uh, you've got all these lists of different sexual things that people aren't supposed to do. And most of them uh, are related to adultery. Uh, and mm-hmm. incest, but I mean, you know, it's things like, you know, don't sleep with your, you know, your, your wife's mother or your mm-hmm. wife's, you know, stepsister or whatever else, right? Or, mm-hmm. uh, you know, those things. 
but then you get into, you know, don't be sleeping with animals. <laughs> don't be, yeah. you know, doing all this other stuff that, uh, you know, um, it seems like every time the, the, the door gets opened a little bit, a little bit wider, more and more things sort of come through on yeah. the spectrum of acceptability. And we have to be careful of that. But I think part of the reason for that is because we've elevated this one particular topic as the forefront of all topics. And unfortunately, we've done that in the church as well. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, when you think about purity culture in the 90s in yeah. the church, yeah. um, I'm, I'm working on some research and getting ready to publish some stuff on that here pretty soon. Uh, that, uh, I mean, a lot of people have left the church because of how damaging that was. Mm-hmm. But the problem was the church put the body as the central focus mm-hmm. of purity instead of Christ. Yeah. And, you know, uh, in the church, we have to keep Christ at the forefront. And yeah. so anyway, yeah. No, that's, that's so true. I mean, you think of Leviticus, you think of the Corinthians and, you know, one of the addresses, one of the issues Paul has to end up addressing is a, a man who's sleeping with a stepmom and he's having to, you, you see some really perverted things where, so, I, I mean, the issue of sexuality is nothing new and how, how this has become one of the, I think one of the primary things that has become distorted as part of the broken world. And, you know, Paul having to establish the sexual ethic and put sex in its place. Mm-hmm. Um, and you find this a battle throughout scripture. I mean, you find though what happens also when you remove God from the equation, when God doesn't become the center of identity, where Christ doesn't become the center of identity, look at the book of Judges and you look at, um, there's the story of, I think it's Judges 14, the, the Levite and his concubine and mm-hmm. the horrible thing. I mean, it's a horrible story. What happens to this woman who he basically just offers up to be raped and mm-hmm. all night long. And, and, you know, you find these horrible stories and these stories happen when God is removed from the picture, right? When we take God out and, and what happens in Judges is obviously, you know, Judges is summed up by everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. God had been removed. So if that, that whole statement, everyone doing right in their own eyes, this reminds me of even going back to this issue of defining identity by your psychological self, right? Mm-hmm. So whatever I think I am, that's what I am. And yeah. this leads to perversity and it leads to hurt. But then even the other thing, I think you bring up a good point, even how this is distorted in the church um, in a in a different way where you talk about purity culture. Um, the idea where we made sexual purity as the cardinal virtue mm-hmm. and sexual immorality as the cardinal sin. So mm-hmm. now we've put those things in places. And again, sexual purity is important. Sexual abstaining from sexual immorality, fleeing from sexual immorality is important. But when you put them in places they don't deserve to be, then what happens when someone fails in that area? And by the way, it's not just having sex outside of marriage. It's pornography. It's oftentimes what happens is when you put those things in positions, people then will kind of categorize what's oh, yeah. actually sexual immorality and what, how do I, you know, how far can I go while still being pure? Right. Mm-hmm. But by the way, you know, you know, pornography, you know, Jesus says in Matthew five, you know, if you were to look upon a woman with lust after her, you've committed adultery in your heart. Um, when you put these in there in this place, then it, you almost, when someone fails in this area, it leads to hurt, it leads to this idea of, 
well, maybe I can't be forgiven of this. Mm-hmm. And so there's got to be forgiveness. And this is, again, if we put Christ in the right place, that for the believer, our identity is found in our position in Jesus, what God has declared us to be, then we find forgiveness for those failings in those areas. Yeah. So, well, we, And, you know, yeah. I think the church has done that with several sins. Uh, or sinful things where they've sort of elevated these these issues. And then, of course, there's ones they don't really deal with. Um, I, I, I'm always remembering, you know, a few years ago, I heard this evangelist, and uh, he kept really hammering on a couple of issues. And then he would make the statement that this big old boy likes to eat. And I'm like, so <laughs> gluttony's okay here, but this other <laughs> stuff you're dealing with is not, right. you know? Right. And, you know, as Christians, you know, it's not that we should be focused on this sin or that sin. We focus on the fact that we're forgiven in Christ. And we Mm -hmm. focus on the fact that while we're forgiven, we're still sinners in need of sanctification. Mm -hmm. And so, but the emphasis shouldn't be on this or that sin as much as it should be on the process of sanctification, Mm -hmm. you know, and I think it even flips how we understand church. So a lot of times people in churches in America, at least think to themselves, I've got to get my act together so I can go to church, right? I've got to look at church like I've got it all figured out, like everything's under control. And -hmm. in reality, it's like, no, no, no. You need to go to church so that God can help you get straightened out. Mm -hmm. In fact, all of us are messed up and all of us need to go to church together so we can be with one another as God works on making all of us more like Christ. Yeah. And um, so in, in the Christian realm, we find primarily our identity is wrapped up in Christ. Who is God making us to be? He's making us to be like his son. Mm -hmm. Um, And then when it comes to understanding, you know, what does it really mean to be human? What is our identity? Well, you know, education is part of your identity. How, how much education you have, where you've been educated is part of your identity. Um, Your ethnicity is part of your identity. And, uh, you know, I think I've said on here before, and and don't mind saying again, you know, I think that um, there are wonderful good things about embracing your ethnicity, no matter what that ethnicity Mm -hmm. is. All ethnic groups have done things they should be ashamed of, but all ethnic groups have done things they should be proud of. Mm -hmm. And so uh, your ethnic group is part of your identity. Your Mm -hmm. gender is part of your identity. You know, as much as I want to, I can't really understand things from a woman's perspective. I can hear a woman's perspective and a woman can share with me her perspective, but I can't experientially understand that. It's just not Mm -hmm. who I am. Um, And then uh, in addition to your, your um, gender, your socioeconomic status uh, leads to your identity, you know, as Mm -hmm. part of your identity. Uh, As much as I want this person over here who has never had to work a day in his life to understand what this person's going through who may not have food on the table tomorrow. There's such a wide gap there. They can't always come to a place where they can see things uh, in a, in a productive way together. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you start looking at all that, then your religion is part of your identity. Uh, not only is your religion part of your identity, whether you're a Christian or not, um, then your, your place in life, your, your vocation is you know, part of your, who you are and your identity. You mm-hmm. look at ancient last names, right? Um, mm-hmm. Somebody's last name is Archer. They were probably involved in some kind of weapon making at some point in <laughs> right. their family history, you know? Yeah. Um, same with Smith is probably some kind of a blacksmith, right? Right. Right. So your vocation is part of who you are. Um, 
but uh, as you mentioned earlier, you know, once we get to sort of the the Enlightenment area uh, era, excuse me, uh, and we start moving into this realm of psychology, I think we also see during that time people starting to have more freedom and more mm-hmm. free time. And when you get through the Industrial Revolution and other things that make life easier, all of a sudden you don't just wake up and work till the sun goes down. You have mm-hmm. all this additional time to mm-hmm. sort of think through things and make decisions in a way that you didn't previously, you know? Mm-hmm people used to get married and have kids because you needed help on the farm, you know, mm-hmm. and now you have kids because you just want to be a parent. Yeah. And so it's, it's a very different world we live in Yeah, and it's afforded us a lot of luxuries and those luxuries have allowed us to um, really sort of rethink what it means to be human. Yeah. But when we take one thing and elevate it to an improper status, it still causes us to look at everything through a skewed perspective. Yeah. Yeah. And so the question then becomes, as we move through these differing times, which you're right, we live in a very different age than even pre-enlightenment or even, you know, 50 years ago, hundred years ago, right. You know, or even 10 years ago, or we live in a very different time. And so as you shift through these differing ages of time, um, the questions, the question of what does it mean to be human? is always this it's always a question you know every every person that's born has within them you know what is it me what is my identity the identity question is a huge part of their life and everyone is trying to find out and a you know, christian non-christian everyone's trying to find what it means to be who they are um plato and, mentions the uh, three questions right who am i why mm-hmm. am i here and what is my purpose? Yeah. You know, yeah. Everybody wants to know the answer to those things. Yeah. And the good news is, you know, how we go about answering that question, there, there are certain things that might, because of our culture and circumstances, might change over time. But there are some truths that remain the same, right? There are biblical truths that remain the same. That one, we as humans were created in the image of God, right? So... And again, this is taking the things that don't change and putting those as the, your primary identifier mm-hmm. is where you find fulfillment, right? One of the problems of making sexuality the primary identifier of who you are and thinking that, so if I'm primarily a sexual being, then that means if I, therefore, if I'm a sexual being, then therefore that means in order to find fulfillment or joy, my purpose is to fulfill sexual desires, right. uh, which is the n- natural conclusion. If you think that your primary identifier is your sexuality, um, the problem is, is what you find is sexuality. It doesn't fulfill. And, mm-hmm. and you talked about earlier how the door becomes more and more open. This is what you find. Our desires eventually we desire one thing and that becomes boring and then we desire something else and then we desire something else. And this is yeah. what leads to very corrupt sexual desires. And again, it's because it was never meant to be the thing that. Right. Um, I think you. you could take that exact same notion and look at it for people whose main identifier is their achievements and work. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you, you move up on the ladder and up on the ladder and up on the ladder, but it's never enough. Mm-hmm. And you never do enough to find total fulfillment in your vocation. Yeah. Uh, you know, then you become a workaholic, but 
to what purpose really? Yeah. Yeah. It's so true. And, um, and so the indefinable things are we're creating the image of God. Mm -hmm. Um, we are meant to, that means if that's my primary identifier, then I am meant to reflect God, to reflect his character, to reflect his reign over the earth. Um, I'm meant to fully image him meant to praise him. That's my, that's my purpose in life. Now, obviously we were creating the image of God and that becomes distorted at the fall. Um, so to refine that purpose, this is where redemption and reconciliation come in the work of Christ. And in Christ, we rediscover that identity as being in the image of God in that we are being made into the image of his son being made to the image of Jesus. And therefore we rediscover this purpose. We rediscover this purpose of that. My, my, if my primary identifier is that I am being remade to the image of Christ, then my primary purpose is to make Christ known and also to invite others into this renewed vision into this. Um, this is, this is the idea of making disciples. I see, Jesus commission of making disciples very much connected to the creation mandate of being fruitful and multiply. That is you're multiplying God's image throughout the earth. Now we as believers by being witnesses of the gospel are seeking to replicate the image of Christ in others. And, and this brings me joy. This brings fulfillment. And it also brings commonality. This is where we find unity and diversity. Um, yeah. Like you said, I mean, uh, we have different races, different ethnicities, different genders, different socioeconomic statuses. Uh, we have all of these things, and they contribute um, to, you know, different people like that are in the church. It contributes to a greater picture of the people of God. But the commonality we find, no matter the, no matter those other second, I would say not unimportant, but maybe secondary definers of who I am as a human. Um, when I put those in their place, but I make my identity in Jesus, my identity in Christ, the primary definer, then I find commonality in, amongst my fellow believers. And this is where we stand out to this culture of there's uncommon, there should be uncommon unity in the church because we have the one thing where identity can remain firm and it doesn't change. Definitely. So, you know, when we say that we're created in the image of God, we have to recognize that that means all people are created in God's image. All people mm -hmm. equally bear God's image. Yeah. And as such, uh, it shows intrinsic value and it shows uh, a reason for treating all people with respect, with dignity, mm -hmm. and so on, uh, you know, nobody is less valuable, so nobody deserves to be used as a means to an end, mm -hmm. you know, and because all people are created in God's image, we have to ask ourselves, what exactly does it mean to be created in God's image? And you sort of touched on this a second ago. Uh, you know, some people think that um, being created in God's image means that we are rational beings because the animals aren't rational. I think that's right. one of the most ridiculous arguments right. because you look at animal kingdoms, uh, the, just the animal kingdom in general, and there's family structure, and there's, you know, roles that different people play in the family kingdom, uh, you know, in families of animals. 
um, they clearly have some sort of rationality, maybe not the same as humanity, but they've got something. Um, but uh, really, you know, when we say we're created in God's image, what it means is we reflect God's character in every way that we're like God. And you mm -hmm. mentioned that our image was broken. And um, that means that whenever we don't act like God, we're reflecting the fact that we are no longer uh, made in his image without, uh, without corruption, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, God is good. God is mm -hmm. truth. God is love. God is jealous. I mean, you know, there's, there's times in which, uh, you know, jealousy, uh, even when we are jealous, is a reflection of God's character. Um, there, you know, God is wrathful, but God is merciful. God is gracious. Um, God is good uh, in the sense that he always acts for the good of his creation. And mm -hmm. when we are reflecting God's image, we should be doing what's best for all the world around us, for mm -hmm. creation, for humanity, for animal life, for plant life, so on and so on, right? Mm -hmm. um, and when we recognize uh, that our, our image is being reshaped in the image of Christ, we look at the Gospels. What did Christ do? How did Christ act? How did he live? And when we see how Christ behaved and emulate that, we are better able to reflect God's image in us because we're being the way that he wants us to, to be. We're living out humanity the way he intends for humanity to live mm -hmm. out itself. Yeah. Yeah, I'll, I'll, this maybe is another topic for another time, but I'll just, I'll throw it out there on the image of God <laughs> because this has to, has to do a little bit even with, uh, what I'm researching in my dissertation, but you know, I even when I go back to Genesis one, I, I look at the image of God. I, I very much see that as a as a royal designation. Um, mm -hmm. So the idea that um, Adam and Eve are where you know, or look at Adam. Let's just use him as the example. That Adam was created as God's royal vice regent on the earth. Mm -hmm. So in other words, God was going to mediate his royal, his reign, his sovereign rule. God is supreme Lord, supreme king over creation because he's the creator. He was going to mediate his reign through his earthly king, right? And, you know, we could say it that way in Adam yeah. and that humanity by whenever God tells Adam to be fruitful and multiply, he's telling him to reproduce these vice regions, this royalty, that humanity is meant to mediate God's good and just rule on the earth um, and, and meant to be to be stewards of the created order, uh, to be the ones that maintain it. And, you know, again, what we find is Adam fails in this task. Adam and Eve fail to, to rule in the way God had called them to. But we, we find in Jesus, Colossians declares him as the image of the invisible God. We find God has restored his good king again. And this is a king who's not just king over physical creation, but this is the one who is God himself, king over the cosmos. And so when Christians, and this is the beautiful truth here, and this is something we can find joy in, when what it means for us to be remade in the image of Christ, to be invited into Christ, is we are now again invited to participate in his royal rule over creation. And it's a good, and it's a just rule, and, yeah. it's, and it's, it's what it's meant to be. Um, it's the order that God always intended it. And when we operate that way, we find joy because we operate in the way that God always intended us to operate. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And a minute ago, you mentioned the idea of disciple making. 
And, uh, you know, when we reflect God's image appropriately, and then we make disciples, uh, part of our desire to do that is to bring them into all of the goodness that comes of being in God's kingdom, under God's authority. Mm-hmm. And yeah. when uh, we don't reflect God's image well, we are left sort of looking at um, our purpose in life or looking at humanity as, you know, uh, how, how do we see this in our image as opposed to how do we see ourselves in God's image? Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I think sort of to, uh, I guess, try to synthesize everything here, when something like sexuality, which tends to be more often than anything, lifted up as the single most important defining factor of who someone is, mm-hmm. um, is elevated to that status, uh, we ultimately find it to be unfulfilling because we can't find meaning and purpose in any one given thing, or at least not yeah. in a way that is perfectly fulfilling. Mm-hmm. Um, you see the same thing with, uh, you know, making education your defining factor yeah. or making your yeah. vocation your defining factor or having kids your defining factor or whatever else, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know for a number of years, uh, I think it was um, Buzz Aldridge who was an alcoholic because he had gone to the moon and come back and uh, it was kind of like, well, I have all these years left and I have no purpose anymore. I've done the things Mm -hmm. I was meant to do. Right. Yeah. And uh, it wasn't until years later when he, you know, began to sort of rethink the purpose of life that he was sort of able to move out of that. And um, you know, anytime we make this sort of one thing, our purpose in life, um, it's, it's just never enough. But when we recognize ourselves as being, um, vastly, um, I, I don't know what the right word would be, uh, but I, I guess, you know, pulled in different directions. You know, we're not just this, but we're, we're this and this and this and this and this. And not only do all these things make up part of who we are, but then the way we think makes up part of who we are and how we act and, and the people around us help give us identity and mm-hmm. our relationship with God helps give us identity. And when you start looking at things from a more holistic perspective, where you're looking at things uh, where everything is sort of rightly ordered with God at the pinnacle of all that order, you're able to then say, okay, given my place in life and given who God's created me to be, this is how I can understand meaning and purpose in the world around me. And so we want to encourage people in Christianity, at least, to to see themselves as a special creation, but as a creation who needs to put God first above all else in their life so that he can help rightly order everything else around them so that their life will be balanced and so that they'll be able to, um, in essence, uh, live the most fulfilling life possible. Yeah. Uh, Scott, I'll I'll just... I'll close maybe with this thought and this is even pivoting back to, so this issue of sexuality and, you know, our whole discussion today, um, I, I think it begs the question of how does the church properly appro- approach these issues? Because, mm-hmm. you know, these sexual issues, you know, you know, what I say is it's not coming, it's here. And yeah. the church has been way behind in how we've addressed it. And so, so let, let's go to the issue of, you know, homosexuality, right? Um, and all these different, well, you know, all these different definitions of LBGTQ um, and how we approach these issues. It, it's got to be more than just saying, well, the Bible tells us not to do it. 
right? Yeah, right. that's right. It's got to, there are deeper issues going on with people that, you know, what we've talked about, even this book I'm talking about is what are the thought processes? What are the worldviews that are leading people to these conclusions that I, I need this? And for you to tell me I can't do it is how dare you? We, we need to be asking ourselves, why are people responding this way? What are the deeper questions being asked? And what you and I have talked about is there are deeper questions involved of what it means to be a human being, of human identity. And these are underlying issues that in the church we need to be addressing before we just go up to someone and say, you're not supposed to be homosexual, right? Or you know, right. the whole, there was this old skit, I can't remember who did it, but it was like a psychologist like telling someone, stop it, right? Like before we just yell at everyone to stop it, we, we need to be addressing some underlying issues and say, look, God has something much better for you than what you think is going to bring you fulfillment. That mm-hmm. there is there is something way better. There's something way more beautiful than thinking your entire life is about finding sexual fulfillment. And the with the church needs to think long and hard about how we address these issues mm-hmm. in a way that's really going to answer underlying questions that people are trying to answer. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And I think that uh, as the church addresses that, they also have to address how have they dealt with sexual issues within the church yeah. in the past, and have they done it appropriately, or yeah. you know where do we need to make changes there as well? So not even mm-hmm. uh, just you know hey let let's figure out where where there's this disconnect between uh, different worldviews outside the church and within the church on this, but mm-hmm. also how has the church dealt with this issue within the church? Um, and yeah. how can it rightly, uh, properly uh, sort of categorize that uh, in, yeah. in the large scheme of things? I think yeah. even the church has oftentimes elevated sexuality to a place where it doesn't really need to be. Yeah. Or and, we've, we've we treated sexual sins differently. Like mm-hmm. this one's really bad, but this, uh, oh, oh, you're just watching porn. That's not as bad. Right. Right. Uh, yeah. So we've we got to be really careful that we are. You know, the testimony we give a lot of times to the outside world is that we're incredibly hypocritical because we're so inconsistent with how mm-hmm. we even handle some of these issues. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, and in reality, um, it should all be about us trying to uh, become more like Christ Yeah, and um, recognizing our own faults and flaws as we become more like Christ. And then calling others into the church to become more like Christ as opposed to uh, trying to force Christ on those outside the church or Christ likeness on those outside the church. So yeah, there's a lot there. And uh, I think that uh, obviously we don't have time to delve into all of that today. But, uh, um, uh, you know, if you're listening to this podcast, I want to encourage you to sort of think through how do I identify myself? What makes me who I am? And ask yourself, do I have a holistic view on who I am, or am I defining myself by just a select few things uh, that are part of my personality or what I do? Mm -hmm. And um, as as you think through this, also think about your own church. How does our church teach the image of God? And how does our church teach the purpose of humanity? How does our church deal with what it means to become a disciple, what it means to follow Christ? And how is our church um, handling cultural issues in a way that's opening the doors of communication 
as opposed to uh, causing confrontation uh, where there can really be no meaningful discussion. So, yeah. All right. Good well, stuff. thanks for being on today, James. I appreciate it. I had, had a nice time having you here on the, on the show. Yeah, Scott, really enjoyed it. Uh, anytime. So, all right. Very good. Well, uh, for those of you at home, thanks for listening and we'll see you next time on the Faith and Culture Now podcast.